Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains references to warfare and everything that goes with it. Listener discretion is advised. Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 115, The House of Tumatoinga. This podcast is recorded in Te Whanganui Atara, on the rohe of Muaupoko, Taranaki Whanui, Te Atiawa and Ngāti Toa Rangatira. We are generously supported by our amazing patrons, including Andrew, John, Paul and Antoinette. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history In our last topic, we discussed Māori religion, from the high concept mythology right down to how the average person would interact with the gods. After that, we had a chat about how medicine worked in pre-European Aotearoa, including an amazing interview with Rongnoa Māori practitioner Donna Kerridge, that I highly recommend you give a listen if you haven't already. Today, we'll be starting our final topic on the pre-European era. It's one that, through colonialism and racism, has come to define Māori in the view of Pākehā and the wider Western world. Warfare. I purposefully have left this topic to last, in part for this reason. I wanted to break the stereotype and show that Māori culture isn't solely based around battle. It was, and is, complex, had art, music and science, that they were a society as rich as any other throughout our history. So hopefully I have managed to show that in the 100 or so previous episodes. However, like all societies, Māori had different groups with different interests, and often these interests conflicted with each other. Although there are many diplomatic ways to resolve these conflicts, diplomacy doesn't always win out, and so violence was a tool that could be used to get utu, or otherwise get what you wanted. 
In the following episodes, we're going to discuss what happened when things boiled over, when enough was enough, and the drums of war needed to be sounded. Before we get into weapons, strategy, and all of that stuff, for there to be a war, there needs to be a reason for that war. Usually that's conflicting goals between two parties, in our case hapu, and it's pretty rare that humans in general would enter an armed conflict for basically no reason. You may have heard this called a casus belli, a Latin term that essentially means the reason for war. In te reo Māori, the word take fulfills the same purpose. There are lots of actions made against hapu that could result in a take, but they all revolved around the diminishing of a hapu's collective mana, which would need to be repaired via utu. That is the really key concept to understand how war happened in Māori society. We have spoken about utu a lot in the past, this idea of reciprocation, It's another part of Māori culture that is often mistranslated because it encompasses a range of actions, such as positive things like if someone gives you a gift, you should give one back of equal value. Or if you go to someone's house and they feed you, there is a reasonable expectation that you will do the same for them when they are next at your place. The mistranslation comes in where Europeans boiled it down to its other aspect, the sort of more negative one, revenge. And of course, in war, that is mostly what's going on. Rangatira and the wider hapu are wanting to get vengeance for some sort of insult to their collective mana, with the goal being to restore it. A hapu's mana could be diminished and generally insulted through a variety of means. The sorts of insults that resulted in take were fairly significant, like not providing good enough food or hospitality at a feast, insulting a rangatera's wife, turning someone's kin into fishhooks, or just good old-fashioned murder, with bonus points if the person was tapu. In fact, a towa, war party, who were out specifically for revenge or blood vengeance was called a towa toto, or towa hiku toto. If someone was killed, often it would be put to their children to avenge their death, which was called purupura ora, translated as living seed. Sometimes the social pressure laid onto the children would be so great that it was expected they would make it their life's mission to avenge their parent. This expectation could even begin from birth, with a special rite performed over them that had a focus on revenge. In saying that though, just like wars in other cultures, Māori fought for all sorts of shit, such as the Girls' War of 1830, where the current and ex-wives of a ship captain were playfully throwing insults at each other, until it gradually got a bit out of hand, with the insults becoming less and less playful. In the end, a decently sized battle occurred where a bunch of people died. That isn't to say Māori were frivolous with their wars, some could be very serious. 
For example, in one case, a chief wanted to go to war because another hapu had harvested from a whale that rightfully belonged to him. However, when explaining his take to Samuel Marsden, he said that he was going to war because his father-in-law's bones had been defiled a few years before by the same people. Generally, an offence of defiling bones or burial sites was cause for instant retaliation. It's pretty much the highest form of offence, so this was significant in that the rangatira had decided to keep his cards close to his chest for a bit, despite having every right to go after them immediately. Overall though, holding on to a take for a few years wasn't too uncommon. This could be done if the hapu needed to build up its strength, or to wait for the political or economic situation to be more favourable. Although wars could be fought for all sorts of reasons, big and small, atake was actually a relatively high bar to reach. Māori had a number of non-violent means to resolve conflict, which we'll talk about in a minute. So usually they would go for those first before committing to a fight. Military campaigns are costly in resources, manpower, time spent away from the fields. You need to consider the logistics of feeding your soldiers, is the fight even winnable, and many, many other factors. So it isn't surprising that for a rangatira to convince a hapu to risk their lives, the take needed to be a fairly significant one, especially given the consequences for losing could be dire. However, if a hapu wanted to go to war with another, say because they had some sort of blood feud, but perhaps didn't quite have the right pretense to do so, they would sometimes try to cause deliberate offence to stoke the fires and get the enemy to strike first, giving them that pretense. They might do this through giving threats, using offensive language in regards to their head or other tapu parts of the body, and talking shit about their ancestors, particularly if the shit talk involved cooking and eating, both in the sense that tipuna were doing the cooking, which was slaves' work, or the ancestors being eaten themselves, which was a huge insult. Rarely was this said to the hapu's collective face, though. The idea was that this information would eventually make its way back to them via gossip and get them riled up to attack. Generally speaking, a take for land acquisition to increase power, wealth or status was seen as not super valid. But if you were fighting to take land because your hapu got kicked out of their own, then that was seen as fine. However, all-out war was usually the last resort. Again, armed conflicts are risky and expensive, so they're not something people do unless other roads to obtain utu have been explored, generally speaking. Utu could take the form of marriage to a rangatira's daughter, gifts of ponamu, land, and stuff like that. This would smooth over most minor disputes so that everyone was happy. If the aggrieved party weren't too fussed on pleasing the other side and more interested in getting their pound of flesh, but weren't keen to commit to a full military campaign, 
then Utu might be achieved through just killing one specific person, performing makatu, or insulting the enemy through various means, like making a song that denigrates them, or fashioning mundane items from their relatives' bones. Of course, this may lead to resentment by the other hapu, and eventually more conflict down the line. Even at this point though, a hapu may not decide to go for open war. They had a couple more tools at their disposal to keep the relative peace. The first was a kinda unofficially recognised group of people called quote-unquote pacificators. These were tohonga, or ariki, who were very interested in maintaining peace, and would help secure it any time they could. Usually they were related to multiple hapu, and aided in keeping peace between those particular groups. It seems the idea was that these people were expert diplomats, whose job it was to ease tensions between hapu, and they were well respected for their work. And of course, being related to all these different hapu meant they had a vested interest in trying to keep the peace. These diplomats usually travelled in a tiritiri, the name given to delegations that were sent from one hapu to another for diplomacy, peace or trade. These groups were meant to be allowed to come and go without disturbance, but Sometimes that isn't what happened, and the opportunity to catch an enemy unawares was sometimes too good to pass up. So this is where cultural institutions like porphyry come in to help alleviate the fears of either side when they came to meet. The main downside to these pacificators is that they weren't independent or neutral. They represented their own side, and so it wasn't a perfect system. Once a conflict turned violent, these people were still very important, often allowed to freely enter the camps of each side. Once the war was over, someone who was related to both parties, called a taharua, would often be speared by the victors. Taharua were an important asset to have, as they would often warn either side of impending attacks, and it wasn't uncommon for them to switch sides if the other hapu had more close relations. The other option to keep the peace was a bit more drastic, the toa muru. In English, some sources translate this term as stripping party, which makes it sound very sexy, but unfortunately it was far from it. The stripping is a weird translation of the word muru, which means to confiscate or plunder. So what it's referring to is the stripping of wealth from one hapu by another, not the uh, other kind of stripping. Given that, a more accurate translation of toa muru is more like raiding party. Some reasons to form a toa muru could be a small encroachment on a hapu's rohe, damage to their crops, adultery with a lower rank person or murder of lower ranked people, suspicion of makatu, or just general insults like calling someone a fuckhead. 
They could also be used if the collective mana of a hapu had been diminished due to public humiliation or insult of a high-ranking person. Although Tawimuru were essentially raids to steal or destroy property, they were inherently non-violent. The goal wasn't to kill anyone, just enact a bit of payback on their material goods. Given that, you might expect this to be a stealthy affair. Getting caught could result in an outbreak of violence, which is not what they wanted. But the Tawamuru would often openly brandish their weapons and make themselves known when they arrived. What this meant was that the peaceful idea of a Tawamuru absolutely relied on those being attacked, understanding what was going on, and not resisting. To avoid a battle, sometimes the Tawamuru would actually send out a messenger ahead of them to alert a hapu that they were on their way, and that as long as they didn't resist, they would turn up, smash some stuff, and then leave. Naturally, this meant the hapu got advance warning to gather up any valuables, like crops in the field, and move them to a safe place before the Tawamuru arrived. This didn't always work though, so sometimes a battle did ensue, and generally the violence would be directed at those who were lower on the social ladder, and thus seen as less valuable than those at the top. Unless both sides gave as good as they got, a hapu may wish to escalate hostilities to something more long term. Of course, Tawamuru weren't a perfect system either. It brought the aggrieved parties together in a heated situation where at least one side was armed. And it was likely that either side would work for their own benefit, rather than try to come to some form of mutual justice. Again, the system kinda hinged on the attacked party being willing to hand over Utu, or allow it to be taken without resistance, which is a big ask even at the best of times. In saying that, Tawamuru were peaceful endeavours. They never went out with the idea to fight or kill. The only exception to that was slaves, who in this context were considered as fair game as destroying a house. So although it may seem like it wouldn't really work, the system of Tawamuru was actually fairly successful in keeping the peace, especially when you consider the alternative was the death, destruction and trauma of war. In terms of us in the modern day looking back at these events, it's hard to distinguish between aggression from a tawamuru and actual full-on war. War and peace is hard to define in the pre-European period, and as we will see in future episodes, describing it more as a temporary cease of hostilities is kind of more accurate. However, we can differentiate Tawamuru and wars slightly in that wars and the military campaigns that resulted from them had different objectives. There was intent to take a par, secure land, kill specific people, or take some other aggressive action that would likely result in death. 
rather than the more comparatively peaceful objectives of the Tawamudu. Though it was common for war to break out because a hapu believed that a Tawamudu had taken too much. Which could happen fairly often, as the lust for loot in the heat of the moment could be overwhelming, resulting in a Tawamudu taking more than what they had initially planned. An unusual idea that came from one source said that since there was no form of public justice between tribes, or any, quote, inter-community mechanisms of authority, end quote, then war was the natural way to sort out disputes, or get utu. To explain that a bit more, where the writer is coming from is that institutions like parliament, the judiciary, and that sort of thing allow for peaceful resolutions between individuals and groups. Alternatively, these entities could be called a, quote, third party or disinterested authority, end quote, which, funnily enough, also encompasses a deity. Remember, though, that the big six Māori atua weren't terribly active in the lives of humans, and the lesser ones that were tended to not be impartial. This source also says that there was no evidence to suggest that ariki would adjudicate disputes between hapu that were under them, though other sources I read disagreed with that. So since Māori didn't have a national, cohesive institution that all hapu recognised to peacefully resolve disputes, whether that be a court of law or a god, they had to resort to violence. However, I think this misses the point that hapu were essentially sovereign nations unto themselves. It's the same as England and France going to war and saying they should resolve their issues through a third party. Which, in a way, kinda does exist today through bodies like the UN or the International Criminal Court, but even those don't work like that, and they definitely didn't exist back in the 19th century. That's more of an interesting side note than anything else, so if that doesn't make sense, then don't worry about it. Diplomacy doesn't always work out, though, and wars do happen. But sometimes it isn't because someone insulted you, sometimes it's for reasons far outside anyone's control. In the 16th century, warfare increased dramatically, and Māori were on the move, hapu making large migrations across the country. The reasons for these migrations is somewhat cyclical in nature. If a hapu had to migrate from one area to another, they would sometimes have to fight the local hapu for the land, which could result in the locals getting kicked out and migrating to another area, where they would fight the locals who get kicked out, and the cycle continues. This didn't happen all the time. Sometimes a hapu could live with another who they were friendly with and have no issues. Or the hapu could move into unclaimed territory. So what we see is once these migrations start to happen more regularly, the Māori population begin to spread to areas they hadn't been in before, erecting brand new settlements. 
This was the time that agriculture came into widespread use, so the population was increasing quite dramatically, which started to put a strain on the limited resources Māori had. Additionally, resources were being even more constrained by the cooling climate, making it harder to grow the crops that Māori had just started farming. So it's a weird combo of lots of resources, but also kind of not enough resources, all pushing and pulling in their own ways, causing conflicts with the result being some people needing to find new places to live. Interestingly, what we also see is a shift in the oral historic record. Initially, Māori record their whakapapa in relation to their whenua as it was being discovered and claimed by the various waka of the Great Fleet, chronicling the spread of people across Aotearoa as they begin to settle it. However, sometime in the 16th century, the record becomes very detailed, and starts to talk more and more about the people's relationships with each other, in particular, the wars between hapu, the motivations that caused them, and the migrations that occurred because of them. This was important to help track historical claims to land throughout history. If problems arose with multiple people claiming rights to the same parcel of land, then they'd be able to determine who had rights to what. This has pros and cons for us as history nerds. The pro was that because Māori didn't develop a unified state across the country, there wasn't a trend towards keeping the history of just the monarch, which is what happened in places like Tonga and Hawaii. Instead, each hapu kept their own histories, which meant there is a good level of granularity in the information they kept. It's a lot more detailed than just what charters the king was signing. That isn't to say they didn't suffer from selective remembrance of events though, that's the con side. By the nature of having to remember histories and pass them orally, some minor events needed to be discarded from the collective memory in favour of the more important ones. However, we don't know what criteria there was for this, so we aren't able to piece together events from incomplete data. This isn't to say Māori oral histories aren't accurate. They are. Most stories, tales and histories across hapu tended to agree on the broad strokes of events, and the conclusion of those events, even if the more nitty-gritty details of how that conclusion came to pass is somewhat disputed. Edward Shortland found that Māori histories were accurate even from hapu that had little contact with one another. He also found that the stories differentiated quite carefully between mythological and historical elements, such as the spiritual and physical places of Hawaii. It's also interesting where these migrations originated from, because we mostly see them coming from areas in the central or southern North Island. More northern hapu tended to dig their heels in a bit more, and made small border adjustments with each other whereas central or southern hapu decided it wasn't as worth it and just packed up and left. This difference in reaction to the same pressure could be down to a few different things. But my guess would be that the more northern regions had a lot more arable land with the warmer climate and volcanic ash, making them much more desirable to defend. There was also just a lot less of it, 
We're talking about the small slivers of land around Tamaki Makaurau and Kororarika. Whereas the land in the rest of the North Island was fine, but it wasn't as bananas as further north, and there was also just a lot more of it. So the desire to stick it out in one place when someone was really giving you the business wouldn't be quite as strong, and instead they decided to move to greener pastures. Even within this, we find other trends, like how longer migrations tended to originate on the east coast, and shorter migrations on the west, most likely spurred on by climate change. These hikoi, marches, would often mean that they needed to cross through another hapu's rohe. If tangata whenua allowed it, the hapu may be granted permission to stay with them for a while to rest up before moving on. For example, Katikuri, a hapu of Kaitahu, moved from Hiretonga, Hawke's Bay, down to Kaikoura in the South Island, which took them through the Wairarapa, Wellington, and Marlborough, before reaching their eventual settlement place on the east coast of Tewaiponamu. Migration being one of the key factors in warfare also means that between periods of widespread migration, warfare may have been significantly less frequent. This is reflected in the three major periods of widespread Māori conflict. The wars that pushed proto-Māori out of Hawaii in the 13th century, the expansion of agriculture and the subsequent construction of pa fortifications in the 16th century, and the acquisition of muskets, changing the state of war in Aotearoa in the early 19th century. While all of this is really interesting, or at least I think it's really interesting, the real juicy part is the way these migrations and conflicts affected Māori society, and in fact their entire trajectory as a culture. After a battle, individuals would often seek protection with nearby hapu that they may or may not be related to, or they would form their own new communities. This had occurred so often by the time Europeans arrived that many villages had multiple hapu represented, which had a number of societal effects. This started, once again, in the 16th century, with the rise of agriculture, the construction of pa, forts, and an increase in warfare, which saw a monumental amount of change in Māori society. Specifically, this took the shape of power consolidation into the hands of a few hapu, and by extension, the rangatira that led them. This was primarily done not just through military conquests, but the emphasis of association with successful ancestors. It was good to say that you were descended from a victorious war leader, and distance yourself from someone who got stabbed in the back because he was a dick. It's similar to the Western medieval idea of placing yourself as the rightful successor to a kingdom because you're descended from a previous king. This quote, major tribal reformation, end quote, saw the rise of many of the iwi that we know today, such as Ngāpuhi, who originated from merging tribes in the mid-18th century, becoming a dominant force in Northland a hundred years later. Nati Mahuta also rose to prominence through these methods after being part of the victory at Hinakaka in the early 19th century, 
a road that led to their ariki becoming the first Māori king 50 years later, a line that continues to this day. An example we have discussed previously is the rise of Ngāti Toa under Te Rauparaha, though they were a little bit of an outlier since they formed a bit later into the 19th century, in part due to the military prowess and mana of their leader. In the South Island, the most famous one is the absorption of Katimamoi into Kaitahu, creating a unified identity that was strengthened when Te Rauparaha and Ngāti Toa came south to fight. Ngāti Kahununu, Tūhoi and others all came out of this period, either just before or just after European arrival, that saw much war, migration and merging of hapu. This consolidation of power into the hands of a few important chiefs may have been Māori society's first steps towards a more central form of government, which would be slash had been seen in other Polynesian peoples, like the Kanaka Māori of Hawaii. This process, which was firmly started before Europeans arrived, was only sped up by them with the introduction of muskets and trade goods, which made the chiefs richer and even more powerful. Overall, because different hapu were mixing and living closely together in villages more than any time before this period, there was a shift in how Māori viewed their relationships with each other both on the individual and community level. Ties to others by whakapapa were becoming less important than ties of a more political nature, because they were often living next door to people they had minimal relation to. The focus began to shift to rangatira who could show their wealth and power by giving gifts, often through feasting, thus affirming the bonds of loyalty in their people. This was further supported by the marae system, a place where the community could meet and discuss issues or celebrate. Marae became more prominent with bigger and bigger ones being built by the time Europeans arrived. Previously, leadership was more determined by battle prowess or whatever other challenges the hapu was facing at the time. Now, it was being centred around the mana of the rangatira. People were slowly starting to not quite care as much about how they fit into a multi-village web of blood-tied individuals, but instead they began to identify with the community of people they lived with in a single place, regardless of their whakapapa, because by the very nature of them all living and working together, they were all invested in each other's common survival. In short, To me, and I cannot stress enough that this is just me shooting in the dark here, it looks like Māori were on their way to forming the equivalent of medieval kingdoms. Which I think is super fucking cool. This was an extremely important step in the development of Māori society, because... As you may have picked up on, the hapu was their main political and military unit. Fano and Iwi didn't tend to go to war as a group. Hapu were the ones making diplomatic choices and fielding armies. This meant there was more division between Māori as a whole. 
The fact that Māori didn't have a more centralised form of governance to resolve disputes admittedly does mean they had to be at least constantly vigilant of their neighbours. And since each hapu had people living within them that were related to other hapu in this sort of big complex web, it did make the whole thing a bit more messy. As such, hapu were the largest organisational unit that could effectively do things like tend to farms and mobilise military forces, meaning there was a limit to what could be achieved and how much land could be effectively controlled. The result of all this movement, all this war, all this turmoil, meant Māori society was changing. They were organising into groups not based on shared kinship, but on political common ground, namely their loyalty to a rangatira and his interest in his people's prosperity. Hapu would combine and merge following a single leader whom they owed allegiance. Anthropologically speaking, this to me looks like it was an absurdly exciting time. Māori culture was rapidly turning into something new, more centralised, coordinated, and ultimately, more powerful. Unfortunately, this amazingly dramatic development in their cultural history was interrupted, as large sails, with even larger ships under them, being spotted on the horizon. Next time, we will move away from this high-level societal thinking, more into the actual art of warfare, discussing some of the weapons Māori used. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaltearoa.com. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the te reo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot, and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, haere tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.